David Gaines, thank you so much for coming in today. I'm excited to uh, to talk to you. You came to Gilman's Assembly a couple weeks ago to talk a little bit about honor with uh, Mr. Kevin Hudson, which we all appreciated. That was pretty cool. Um, but I'd love to just maybe start out with going back to your time at Gilman School and when you first arrived here as a student. Oh, man, that would have been, gosh, I was a first grader. And I lived on Huntley Square, which is off of Benston Place, which is a walk from here. So when students walk from Gilman to Bryn Mawr, they would walk right by my house. So my mom walked me up here on the first day, held my hand, and said, uh, this is the last day I'm going to walk you to school. So uh, I hope you remember how to get here. And I was thinking to myself, wow. Um, But I loved uh, the Gilman Lower School. So much fun. I remember getting chicken pox in maybe third grade or something like that because I was in the bathtub and I'm looking at myself and what's going on here? (laughs) And um, my mom says, well, you can't go to school tomorrow. And I remember being so upset. Like I was on the verge of just crying and I'm thinking, I can't go to school. Like school is so much fun. Um, It was just glorious here at Gilman, you know, in the lower school and, um, you know, really enjoyed it. And. Um, I remember funny thing about it back then we were very good wrestling school Mm -hmm. and we're known for wrestling and and I think I know why now because Mr. Finney was the headmaster and Mr. Snyder was the head of the lower school and he was a wrestler and you know how in lower school you have these fun intramural type of events right where you play kickball one day and dodgeball the next and swim and flag football every third day second day something like that would be wrestling and we loved it you know so Mm -hmm. you go kickball dodgeball wrestling Mm. football soccer wrestling and wrestling was constantly being thrown in there and his little boys you know we most natural just natural we just loved it yeah so it's funny how that was those games when you're a little kid i remember middle school lower school uh dodgeball and then we had a game in my elementary school where you're trying to knock the the pins over so you have to guard your pin you've got capture the flag i mean those games there's nothing like that nothing like that just that made up sports and i remember being down on the football fields or whatever and playing some kind of made up game and hearing the bell and just running as fast as you could because you knew you couldn't be late Mm -hmm. and sprinting into the class and sitting down and just dripping in sweat as you're trying to like Pretend like everything is cool. <laughs> Get back in the mode. Yeah, I mean, th- that's one thing that I notice when I walk, because I'm living on campus now, walking to and from school, all the little kids before school starts are playing all over the fields. The lower school guys are playing pickup football, pickup games, and it's yeah. it's great. I mean, that's how you learn. That's how you get to know your classmates. It's really part of the education at Gilman, I'd say. I would agree, Yeah. Makes it special. And then we have the uh, the long scenic is what they call when they have the little guys run all the way around. You know, we're doing the long scenic today. You're doing three laps around the campus. It's amazing. And then these kids just sprint everywhere. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yep. So, what were your sports when you were when you were growing up? What was your I guess go to um, favorite sports to play? Yeah, um, loved football. You know, my my dream was to go to Notre Dame and play football, Um, loved football. 
Um, when I was in lower school, I played football, I wrestled, and I played baseball. Hmm. Um, yep. And um, I switched out of from baseball to lacrosse in eighth grade. And I switched out of wrestling in sophomore year and started playing basketball. So I used to go down to the gym, and before wrestling practice, we'd just have pickup basketball, and we'd be running around the green room, hmm. just banging into each other. And I thought, this is a lot of fun. And then it didn't help that I kept getting beat at my weight class. So I couldn't wrestle at the like 136 weight. I'd have to either go up to 142 or whatever, 148 or 150 at the time, and I would just get mauled. Yeah. I wouldn't have to lose any weight. But the guys that were good were, you know, sucking weight and coming down and beating me in the wrestle-offs. Yeah. And then I'd have to wrestle up against these teams, and I was getting creamed. So I decided, you know, hey, this is – maybe this isn't for me. Wrestling's an interesting sport with the weight cutting. I never wrestled. I was always a basketball player, but I remember playing uh, Pop Warner football growing up, and I was one of the bigger guys. I was like 90-pound weight class. And I was probably 103 pounds. And I had to get down to 90 pounds as a fourth grader so I could play with my friends. Is I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate wrestling as a sport, but some of the weight cutting is a little, I don't know. It's a little messed up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So luckily, I never had to cut the weight. So I was always a guy that would wrestle up. Yeah. And um, we had a lot of good wrestlers back then. So, um who was the wrestling coach? Um, coach Leg, Chris Leg, and um, some some really good. There's one really good wrestler here, uh, Coach uh, or Doctor K, as you call him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Kritovich was uh, really good. So Henry Franklin was another in that yep. class. Eighty-seven had some really good wrestlers. You know? He's coaching here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. We grew up together. Really good guy. How'd you get into lacrosse from baseball? Um. Sort of a funny story. Uh, I won't. I'll, I'll save the name to protect the innocent. But um, my everyone in my family played lacrosse, and I thought it's so boring. Like, why, why, come on. And I think maybe it was just rebel, rebelling. But I really loved baseball, and had a good baseball career. Uh, played a lot of rec ball, and was proud of myself because I was on these all-star teams. And um, Seventh grade year, I tried out for the seventh, eighth grade team, and only three seventh graders made it, myself, Leon Newsom, and, and uh, Matt Eastwick. And Leon Newsom went on to be 6'8", 275, and Matt Eastwick was our center for our baseball, you know, our basketball team. He was 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, something like that. Both of these guys went to, we all three of us went to Princeton, actually. Um, so it was the three of us, and I wasn't getting played. I wasn't even seeing the field. And so one day I went up to the coach and said, hey, coach, I'd like to, I'd like to show you something. And he said, okay. Um, and then um, Jack Cavanaugh gets hurt. Um, he's a lefty and he's a first baseman. He's a really good first baseman. So they stick me in at first base. I'd played every position in baseball except for first base. So he says, hey, go on in there, Gainer. You, know, you got this. Okay, so I get in there. There's a tough out. Uh the uh, shortstop tries to make the play, throws it to me in the dirt. I try to get my body in front of it. It gets by me and squibs off. Guy gets on base, run scores. We're now trailing. Coach is apoplectic. And he starts yelling at me from the sidelines. 
hey, Gaines, I thought you were going to show me something. Mm. And boy, did that temper in me just, because I had a little temper when I was a little guy. Um, and I just got so furious. And I came home and was having dinner and just quiet. And my dad's like, so how was the game today? I thought you said you were going to play. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You know, I couldn't talk about it. And then he said, well, what, you know, finally he said, what happened? What happened, son? And I told him the story. And I said, Dad, I'm not going to play baseball next year. I'm going to play lacrosse. And he says, all right, let's go to Backrack Sports. He took me there right after dinner. We went and bought a defensive stick, and he started throwing with me that night. Wow. <laughs> so my dad, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame for lacrosse. So he really wanted me to play lacrosse, as you can imagine. He was just waiting for this moment. I think he's probably on the phone to my brother, right, like right afterwards. We got him. Let's go. Uh, Where'd your dad play lacrosse? He played at Princeton, and then back then he played at Mount Washington Club. Mm-hmm. And back in his day, he was in the class of '49 from Princeton. The national champion was decided between the best college team, maybe at that time it would have been Hopkins. And Mount Washington Club. Mm-hmm. And so my dad was a national champion as a club player, yeah. which is, you know, funny to think about nowadays, right? But right. there just wasn't that many, you know, if you were All-American, you were kind of like all zip code back then, right? Because it was only guys from New York and Maryland sort of playing it. And then the oddball maybe from Ohio or whatever would find out about it. But, you know, back then it was just a – it was a very centralized sport. Um, hmm. So it was neat, yeah. Wonder why you didn't get into base or lacrosse right away. You were you were playing baseball. I, I loved baseball. I yeah. really did. I really enjoyed it. Had a lot of fun. Um, and I was you know I was I was good at it. I could hit the ball, and uh, and that was that. And it was sad because I was I just gave it all up because this coach chased me over. Now that's one of those God moments because sometimes we think we go through adversity and it, it seems so painful at this time and. It, knocks us off our path that we thought we should be on. Mm -hmm. And if it hadn't been for that moment, I wouldn't have gotten into Princeton. I wouldn't have been recruited to play lacrosse. Um, And so that was a pivotal moment in my life that I didn't even know until, you know, looking back on it, how how awesome that was for me. And then you started playing lacrosse in high school here at Gilman. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. was that experience like? Uh, It was great. I started off uh, eighth grade team. I asked my buddies, hey, what, what should I try out for? And they said, uh, it's really easy to pick up defense. You don't really need to catch and throw very much. You like to play football and hit people. And you were, I assume, a pretty big dude in high school. Pretty big. I was, you know, 190, I guess, which is pretty good size. Yeah. Maybe 175 coming up. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun pushing kids around. And, and, and it, was. it was. It was easy to pick up as an eighth grader. And I made the team and was one of the starters. Um, and then my freshman year, Gilman, I went and played Frost Soft, mm-hmm. which is so much fun, a bunch of freshmen. And, you know, I was, re- I was against the right talent. Right. And the next year I got to play JV, which I loved because now I was good enough to play against the JV guys. Mm-hmm. And then my junior year, I went uh, and played on the varsity team. And uh, I didn't see the field much at all. Because we had two fantastic defensemen. One of them is here right now, Brooks Matthews, mm-hmm. and the other is Brian Volker. And Brooks went on to be the captain of his national championship lacrosse team at UNC. Um, just a fantastic player. And Brian Volker um, was a complete animal and played on the, you know, went on to Hopkins, U.S. World Team, 
several times, I think. And uh, now he's a coach, coach, professional lacrosse player. So, you know, I, my dad used to say to me, "Why aren't you playing?" I was like, "Dad, have you have you seen these guys? Like, come on." Yeah. Of that, course, I'm not going to. That's play. the class of '87, right? Class of '87. Yeah. 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 A lot uh, of talent there. Yeah, and it was great. And for me, it was it was it was good because you. Um, you learn through that adversity, right? Once again, you have to work hard. You, if you want to get playing time, you got to wait your wait your turn because these guys are better than you. And if you want to get be the next guy, you got to work hard. Right. So it was great because my I was a late bloomer, um, and I didn't get you know really discovered by anybody till the summer of my going into my senior year. Hmm. So. How did that whole process work when you were in high school for coaches to find you and recruit you? Yeah, they um, it was much different because we didn't have club lacrosse. Right. Uh, lacrosse was a lot more fun back then. You know, you had summer leagues, yeah. and you'd go sign up for heroes, and you and I would be on the orange team, and we'd play against the blue team, and you know, and it would be guys from you'd be mixed in with guys from Gilman and Loyola and Calvert Hall and BL, and we'd all be just a big mishmash of guys. Um, and that was so much, you know, it was just a lot of fun. And, and and it was all age groups. So I guess one thing, I just to comment on club lacrosse nowadays, is that ninth graders are only playing with ninth graders and 10th graders are 10th graders. Well, back then, summer league, you'd be a 10th grader going up against seniors, you know, or maybe even a freshman in college. And you really learn and you see the difference in, in, in levels, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, you see that here at Gilman with the varsity lacrosse team. Right. But anyway, the coaches would really rely on your high school coach and they would ask the other high school coaches in the area hey who, who are the good kids um and then you would go they just started having these lacrosse camps and i got to go to the i used to go to the johns hopkins lacrosse camp and that's where i met uh, coach tyranny for the first time hmm. and that was when he was coaching at hopkins or he was just there as a as the princeton coach recruiting yeah so he had just switched um, the year before, he had taken over the Princeton team. His first year as a coach at Princeton, he went 2-13. and 13. Yeah. Beat down. He would get beat down. When we graduated, I was his first recruiting class, or part of his first recruiting class. We went 13-2. Uh, and two. Mm-hmm. But it's funny. Um, I met Coach Tierney at this. I'll never forget. I met him at the Johns Hopkins lacrosse camp and all these coaches are there and you know that's sort of your chance to shine because they're all there with clipboards and they got your number and your name's on the back of your helmet and they're like okay there's scott yeah no thanks uh gains yeah we gotta look at this guy right now but uh, so anyway they um they're watching me and we're doing one-on-ones and i'm thinking i'm gonna show these guys what i got and i go to du up and i'm throwing checks and whoop you go right by me score mm. toasted me next guy comes out I try to do the same thing. I'm, you know, I'm just a big man on campus. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Boom. Mm-hmm. Toasted me. And I'm sitting there just embarrassed because I just got smoked in front of all these coaches. Mm. So Tierney says, hey, as his famous lines, he always goes, he goes, hey, big boy, come here. And, <laughs> and he pulls me over and he says, look, on the next one-on-one you do, I do not want you to throw one check. You're not allowed to throw a check. I said, yes, coach. So I went in there, and I didn't throw a check. And the next time he said, uh, he says, all right, I want you to do whatever it was. I said, take away his left hand, 
or take away his right hand, make him go left, and then push him away, you know, push him on an angle 45 degrees away from the goal and see what he does. And so I did it. And then after that, that was it. I just, you know, did what he said, and I never saw him again at that camp. He just kind of walked off. And um, when I was a senior, I remember going to him because I was one of his captains. And that, you know, you have this intimate time with the coach. A lot of times you get to sit down with them between games. And he tells you their concerns, and, you know, they talk to you. And I said, Coach, why did you why did you recruit me? What was that? What happened? He says, well, um, you were a knucklehead, but when I told you what to do, you didn't question me, and you did exactly what I said in the exact way I told you to do it. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, this kid's coachable. I, that's when I decided I was going to recruit you. And he said, and then he found out by talking to Gilman, hey, this kid was a good football player. Mm-hmm. You know, I was quarterback of the team and a, and a defensive back. Um, and I played basketball at the time, and it was a multi-sport athlete. Um, and so he said, yeah. And, and he knew my father had gone there, I think, so that, that helped him with recruiting mm-hmm. you know, to get me in and stuff. So, Wow, that's a cool story. Yeah. So what was it like when you, I guess, arrived at Princeton and Tierney was your coach and you're a freshman? How was your – I guess, freshman year there, and how did you progress as a player in yeah, those four so, years? Yeah, my uh, well, it's funny. My um, uh, I don't know if we have time, but I, I, I actually played football my freshman year. Um, they had a freshman football team, so I missed fall ball. Um, and so I came out for the team in the spring. It was kind of the first time, you know, Tierney had got, got eyes on me with the team. And it was sort of a little bit, felt, felt a little awkward because they all knew each other from fall ball and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a very serious guy and knew how to run. He was very, um, highly organized with, you know, with his practices and stuff. And we'd come to find out later that he didn't just think about how to run the X's and O's of the practice, but he had like the psychology of the whole practice that he had in mind of what he was going to do to, and say to different players and that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, during game time, um, it was, uh, Totally different guy. He was so fired up all the time, yelling, cursing, you know, that kind of thing. And um, he, I remember, you know, if you got burned, we, the stadium was really small because we were in this tiny little stadium, and the stands were right up behind our bench. And so the coaches, you know, the parents could hear exactly what the coaches were saying. And he used to just yell, you know, stuff like F me, David Gaines, like out loud. And my mom and dad are just sitting there in the stands. I remember my dad saying, uh, son, you know, what, how do you, how do you feel? Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah. And I said, well, dad, uh, you know, I'm a competitor. I like to win. And I said, when I look over at the sideline, I know there's one person over there that wants to win as much or more than I do. And I'm game for that. So let's go. Yeah. And uh, and then I found out that, you know, I became one of those guys that was kind of a, you know, whipping boy where I could I could sort of take it because he would just go off on certain guys to kind of make make, you know, a statement or something. Um, and I was pretty resilient. So he knew that he wouldn't break me mentally, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you had to make a point. But then, you know, I usually I fell in line after a while and, you know, it was good to go. So um, but it was kind of a, it was an awkward freshman year as a team because we as freshmen wanted to always were really chippy and we knew that if we 
scrimmage the rest of the team, we had a chance of beating them. And that was a weird feeling, right? To so think this was a really good recruiting class at Princeton that, that it was, you were a part it, of. It was good. It was good. Um, the real, the best class I ever saw was the sophomore. Was the when I was a senior was the sophomores. So that would have been the class of '94. Mm-hmm. That was really good. But he just steadily started getting better and better and better guys. You know, coming in. Um, but we were the we were the starting point for him. You know, as far as the. And, and, you know, he couldn't convince guys, um, you know, real studs to come because we were 2-13. and 13. But what he did get is he got guys that, as he told me, he, he went and recruited kids that knew how to win. He didn't care if you came from a winning football team like Eric Gilman. We had winning football and lacrosse. But he wanted to, he wanted to find winners because guys that win typically want to win and they learn how to win and then they'll sacrifice to win. Mm-hmm. And then he said he wanted athletes. And... Um, we had some really good athletes. In fact, one of the guys was uh, from Texas named Chad Muir. Um, he was recruited for basketball, and he was, uh, you know, a swing man on the basketball team as like a as a guard. And he didn't he didn't like it, and he left the team and joined us. Hmm. And he hadn't played lacrosse, but Tierney taught him, and he worked his way up to being a defensive mini for us. And he scored a goal in the national championship. It's amazing, right, to think about that. This guy that, you know, but Tierney just knew, hey, I'm going to take athletes and turn them into lacrosse players. Um, and then that was what he did probably with our class and the next class. But then, then he started in 94 bringing in these kids that were blue chip names that everybody knew, and they were at all these, you know, north-south all-star games here at Hopkins. And, yep. you know, th- that's when we knew we were going to turn the corner. I was watching some of that 92 championship game. I was at Penn against mm-hmm. Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Franklin Field. Franklin Field. And, yeah, you've got some highlights on YouTube, but I didn't realize that it was double overtime. And you guys were up in the fourth quarter with not too much time left. And you lost the ball on offense. Syracuse goes down. Or uh, Scott, what's the goalie's name? Scott Batchgalupo. Batch Glupo has the ball. He's about to Gilman it, throw it all the way down the field, and he whiffs, and they pick it up and score a tie game. Now it's overtime. Yeah. And that could have been it right there. It could have been it. Reminds me kind of like the Cornell and uh, Syracuse game not too long ago where um, Cornell's up, and all they have to do is clear the ball, and they screw up, and Syracuse (laughs) goes down and scores, and then scores again. Now it's overtime. But luckily you you won. Yeah, and pulled it out. Yeah. and it's funny too. Uh, it was a funny moment there, because at half, uh, well, I shouldn't say halftime. At, at when you go into uh, overtime, you have to go out and do like a coin toss again or something like that. And I go out because Terry's like, uh, you know, Gainer, I don't need you here. You you know the defense. We're not going to change anything on defense. I need to talk to the offense, put in some plays. Um, the other captains were all offensive guys, so I said, you go, you go take the, the toss. So I jog out to the middle of the field. And I'm by myself standing with a referee. And the referee's name is Al Sattler. And Al's dad was Will Sattler, Bill Sattler. And Bill Sattler's nickname was Uncle Willie. I called him my Uncle Willie. And when I was a little kid, I remember my dad taking me fishing down to the Outer Banks. It was my dad, Uncle Willie, my older brother, Brandon, and Mm. Al Sattler. Hmm. How about that? 
and we spent a week together. And, and I remember standing out there and the two of us just looking at each other and trying not to like smile. And I remember saying to him something like, um, I bet you never thought we, after, you know, seeing me in a little red haired wild man at 12 years old, I'd be standing next to you at this moment. And he's like, yeah, absolutely not. Uh, here comes a Syracuse guy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my it God. was just amazing. Like we were just out there with all these fans and everybody getting all fired up and stuff. And I was like, I can't believe it. Here we are with Al Sattler oh and I, God. just a family friend. Yeah. That was a ref. Um, so you get, I think, you he, get... I think he called a slashing penalty on me too. I should have said something to him about that. Jeez. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was just a, it was a cool moment, right? Really cool moment. What was that? Uh, what was that game like? What was that team like in 92? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you remember much about my grandfather, Coach Scott? Oh, Coach Scotty. Oh, yeah. Beam me up, Scotty. So that team's personality, uh, we went through, I want to say, maybe four overtime wins during the season, and we had a lot of really close one-goal games. So you were comfortable. So when we Exactly. So when we went into the huddle, we all looked around each other and said, we're going to win this. We had that feeling. Like, I just knew. It's like, I'm not scared. I'm not nervous. I think, you know, Q says it all, the pressure on them. They were the big favorites. We were the big underdog. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny. Uh, I think one of the, you know, magics to uh, Coach Tierney was his nod to guys like Coach Scott. Because Coach Scott, being your grandfather, he was sort of like a grandfather to the team as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he would be the guy, uh, you know, he wouldn't be like the – sitting there and talking X's and O's with us and stuff like that, right? But when Tierney had just chewed you up one side and down the other, suddenly this Coach Scott would kind of appear by your side and he'd have an arm around you or something like that. Or he'd be consoling guys on the offense who had just missed a goal or, you know, done something dumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'd be right there with them. Um, and uh, there was, you know, a, we, had a, we had another coach like that. But uh, he was just genuine, you know, it was it was great that, you know, Coach T kept him with the staff, right? Um, because he had that sort of calming sense and that wisdom about there's more than just a game going on here, right? And mm-hmm. these are young men that we're developing. And uh, that's sort of one of the things I loved about Coach Scott. <laughs> that's know, awesome. That, right? It's funny. Yeah. You know, he never came to me and said, oh, you should have slid and did this and checked like that. It was just, you know, you're doing great. Hang in there. You know, we got this. You got this. You've been here before. You know what's going on. Come on. You know, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, so you, you need that, right? You need that behind the scenes, I think. It's sort of a. Especially with a coach like Tierney, who's so fired up and oh, chew yeah. you out and he's on top of the refs. You need a steady presence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, funny and funny, just to give you an idea of Tierney, I was my senior year, so I wasn't that worried about him and we were playing against Carolina we played him twice that year we beat him in the semifinals but we lost to them at home like five to three and they were the defending national champions and they had a bunch of studs I mean just full of horses that could score from anywhere and we were we were known to slide early because that was Tyranny's defense like slide early and and support your guys um and, uh, gosh, I forgot the guy's name. Just went off the top of my head. But he was a really good kid, I think, from either – I think he was from Severn. He was a midi for uh, Carolina. He makes a dodge. I mean, he's, he's like, almost by a straining line. He's, he's way out there and just rips the ball right by Scotty's head. Just 
boom. And Tierney's yelling at me. He's like, Gaines, you got to slide. You got to slide. And, and he's yelling at me. And he's, he's, I mean, I could probably throw my stick and hit him in the head. He was that close to me because my, my attackman had kind of drifted over there. And I'm covering him. And I'm just sitting there just like, don't do it. Thinking, don't do it. I said, I just turned over. I said, hey, coach. Hey, coach. That was an amazing shot. And he just was like, what? Are you some kind of North Carolina fan now? Oh, my God. He goes, he goes, he goes, Volker, get him out of the game. Get Gaines out of the game. Get him off his timelines. He's done. And coach, and I remember Volker being like, hey, coach, calm down. You know, it's like 3-3 right now, coach. We're in like fourth quarter here. The defense is doing great. You know, mm-hmm. calm down. Let's just, just let, just, it'll be okay. <laughs> Jeez, he was so fired off. It's funny. Well, some coaches who are like that, who scream all the time, it just goes in one ear and out the other, and you kind of lose—not respect, but you lose. The coach loses their authority because they're always yelling, and it's just who they are. How does how did Tierney manage to keep you guys kind of on board and respect respectful of him over the course of? You know, four years, you've got this guy yelling all the time, but you still love him as a coach. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess there were times where it was sort of, you know, he lost that sense of, I lost that sense of intimidation about it. But freshman and sophomore, they didn't know what to do, right? These kids had come, if they had come out of a, you know, pampered program or something like that, I think it got in their head a little bit. Um, But that's it, you know, I guess for each player, it's an individual kind of thing, right? How they how they deal with that, and for some of us, we would try to do our best to help these guys, right? Bring them along. And I remember we had a reunion for that 1992 championship, our 25th reunion, and we went up there at Gillette Stadium and they honored our team. Mm-hmm. And we had a really good midi named Brian Tomio Tomes, and he came to me and says, Gainer. And he would talk like this. He says, Gator, Gator, I can't believe it. I got to tell you this story. You know, he's a Long Island guy. And uh, I said, what's up, Tomes? And he says, do you remember that time when I did whatever and totally screwed up? And Tierney had brought the whole team together. And in the huddle, you know, Brian is like right here and Tierney's right here. And everyone else is circled up because, you know, you're all circled around the coach. And he is just going crazy yelling at him. And he says, I felt your hand on my shoulder and I felt you squeeze and come up behind me and say, it's going to be okay, Tomes. He still loves you. We need you. You're still going to be a starter after this. Don't worry, brother. We got this. And he says, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Coach is yelling at me in the middle of front of everybody. And you're the only one who says, I love you, Tomes. You're the man. I love you, Gator. And he just broke down. He started hugging me and stuff and crying right there. It was the funniest moment. I was like, really? I don't remember doing that. But, uh, you know, we had that brotherhood, I think. You know, whereas as seniors, we, we took the guys under our, tried to take them under our wing, especially that year, because my senior year, we had so many good kids coming in that in fall ball, people were a little chippy. You know, they'd bump into each other, and a freshman would be start, like, jack up a senior. Yeah. And be like, hey, you want to throw down? Like, we're like oh, whoa, whoa, e- easy there, stud. Right? And we, and we had this sort of broken relationship. So, um, probably shouldn't mention this on the radio, but we started the Wednesday night club and the Wednesday night club, we would have 
the players over to our room and how did we say we would we would be bonding we would do bonding as a team mm-hmm. it was forced bonding you know where us seniors would bring the guys together and we, we would have fun and eventually got out and then the campus used to come to our apartment and it was the place to hang out on Wednesday night and we ended up having you know lots of other people who wanted to bond with us as well and it turned out to be a really fun moment hmm. till um till the playoffs came around and uh his first round playoffs, Maryland was coming up to play us, and everybody looks at me and says, are, are, are we going to do the Wednesday night Wednesday night club this week? I said, of course. That's, that's the magic to the sauce, man. Got to mm, do it. Yeah. It is. I mean, it is to have bonding with a team is very yeah. important yeah. in, in and college so, to get yeah. to know the younger guys, to see each other outside of the field and the locker room. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's is magic to a team for yeah. sure. Yeah, and you break down those bonds, you know, and you get to know each other. And the next day, I remember that practice was our worst practice we'd had all, all like all season because everybody got a little bit mm-hmm. uh, rambunctious, so we say. And at the end of the practice, we were just couldn't clear the ball. We were just bouncing balls were bouncing off our heads. We were missing the goal by a mile, and he was just so upset. And he just pulls us in early. He's like, "I'm I'm tired of this. I'm I can't watch you guys practice anymore." And, and then he's sitting there just staring at us like all quiet. And he goes, which one of you knuckleheads was out last night? Hmm. And my buddies will, well, this is, this is a true story now. The guys will tell you is I just, I, I was standing there. I was captain of the team and I just went like this. And I put my hand up like this, like about as high as I could get it. And all these guys were looking at me and you'd see them like yep, do, doing that. And I remember they were like, you know, kind of like, like kind of like this. Yep. And then a couple of their hands. And next thing you know, like all around me, all these hands go up. And <laughs> Coach Tierney, his head popped off. He just started blowing up at us. I yeah. can't believe you did this. Da, 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 da. Get out of my face. Get out of my sight. Before a playoff game. Before a playoff game. Mm. This is the biggest moment of your lives, you knuckleheads. And uh, Maryland came up, and we, we took care of business. Yeah. And we put him down. <laughs> there you go. And then the next week we said, yeah, we better take a break from this. <laughs> That is great. <laughs> but, you know, it's just one of those things that, um, you know, I guess you had to kind of do it anyway. So you were a captain your senior year. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about leadership and maybe some of the leadership lessons you learned during your time at Gilman that maybe, I mean, you started playing lacrosse in eighth grade, played for the high school team here at Gilman, and then you're a captain at Princeton your senior year. Like what, I guess, what affected you during your time here that – led you to thrive in at the college yeah. level. Yeah. I think it comes down to the leadership by example. Um, I think a lot of kids nowadays who, you know, uh, they want to be on the varsity at a very young age, right? And they don't want to work their way up through the ranks. The thing I love about working my way up through the ranks is I got playing time. And I, I had to, I got to battle in games as a freshman and as a sophomore through my lacrosse. But then what would happen is when you were on the varsity team as a young guy, you typically, you know, sat the bench, but you got to watch these guys in front of you and you saw their work ethic because they were working hard. And we all always looked up to all as a freshman. You just, you know, God worshipped all the seniors walking around. You knew all their names. You knew who they were, what the deal was. Right. And you thought there's no way I could hang with these guys. Um, and, and it was just this culture at Gilman of, 
of um, it was cool to do well in school and on the athletic field. So there was there was nothing better than to see a guy that would be a you know a all star football player and he's going to the Ivy League and doing having having a you know a, a average in school and getting good SATs. It was sort of just that culture, mm-hmm. um, and it came down to that that's work ethic, I guess, is what it was. And so it wasn't sort of a you know like a rah rah sort of a leadership thing. It was when when we would run. Um, suicides. I remember trying to say to myself, I'm going to be the first defenseman to finish always. And I always wanted to try to beat an attack, uh, an attackman, of course. And sometimes I wanted to hang with the middies. And so I would just really try to push myself at the end of practice to show guys, Hey, this is when it matters, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all this other stuff, this is when we got to work hard. Um, I never missed a gym workout because in the winter times, you know, we'd have those workouts and you'd show up and always be there on time you know, and, and there and, and just to support the other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I hated to run, but I would run. I would do whatever the running was that was required, and I'd run with the guys. And, uh, you know, that was sort of the thing. So I, for me, I think at Gilman, that's what I learned was that, that you got to put in the hard work. Nothing is going to be handed to you. Mm-hmm. And so that translated well into college because me being a kind of a late bloomer, I had to, you know, I was a blue chipper. I had to work hard for what I had. I didn't. I wasn't a, you know, I was a good athlete, but I had to work you had to catch up. And I had to catch up. World. Yeah, exactly. How about academically? What was the transition like from Gilman to Princeton? Yeah, um, it was easy. I mean, my freshman year, I was so well prepared for Gilman because of Gilman. You know, we had so much homework, and and the teachers were, uh, we were pressing. You know, I was mm-hmm. in whatever AP Spanish and AP Math and all those kind of things, and and the teachers had such high expectations for us. They held such high expectations and pushed us hard in class. So when I got to Princeton, I was like, yeah, this is, you know, freshman year they had to. I think they had to tone it down because they had kids that weren't coming from a Gilman kind of background. Some of them, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I was very well prepared. Um, what I was think. your subject? Uh, I was a history major. Yep. Yeah. And did that begin here at Gilman? Did you have a history class that you really liked here that led you to want to study history? Um, I remember taking um, history with um, Coach Schloeder, Mr. Schloeder, and I really loved his his history class. I think it was the United States history since 1942, or I forget why it was 42, or that year jumps into my mind, but something like that. And that was a class that everyone wanted to get into, and you know, if he would waitlist kids, but he would, if you were a football player and you wanted to be in his class, he, you know, he'd hook you up. So <laughs> that was good. Hmm. Yeah. Who were some of your other role models when you were here at Gilman, either in athletics, sure. on campus, teachers, coaches, mentors? Yeah. Um, coach Holly, my favorite coach of all time of any sport and any community. Really? Yeah. He was my JV football coach. Um, and he and I just had an amazing bond. I've never had a coach that just, he loved me. You know what I mean? Like, like he didn't just, like, I'm not saying he, he was loving to me. And the way he treated me was so wonderful. Um, I remember I would, I would go to you and say, hey, um, uh, Mr. Scott, can, 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 I need to go work on my, um, I forget what he was teaching back then. It might have been English literature or something like that. I said, I, I need to go see uh, Coach Holly to discuss my English literature paper. And this was in 401 study hall, which is the top, you know, it was a big wide open room at the top of the building here. And, um, 
Anyway, they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You can go see Mr. Holly. And we'd sit down, and I wasn't even taking a class with him. And we'd sit there and talk about plays and what we were going to do and go through the playbook and kind of map out the first few series of the game. I was just so into it with him. Um, and so that was wonderful. Um, obviously, Mr. Finney was an amazing influence, I think, on all of us. I'll never forget him uh, from, you know, reading from the Bible, you know, at the assembly and you're like, oh my gosh, like he's reading from the Bible. Like really, you know, back then I was, it just, you know, I wasn't as faithful as I am now, but, um, he was ever present. Um, and you could tell that he, he knew everybody's name and he was just so, he, he just personified the Gilman spirit at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, another, well, Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, what was the culture like, I guess, at those readings or assemblies or chapel sessions that you guys had where Mr. Finney would speak in front of everyone or you'd had different speakers? What was that atmosphere like in there? Um, that's a good question. Uh, when, when, he would, when he would speak, he would get up and make us, you know, sing hymns with him. It was sort of almost like a church service, if you will, and he'd read from the Bible and he would talk to us about honor and integrity and, and things like that. Or if there was a current event that he wanted to, you know, emphasize, he would he would talk about that. Um, and when he was speaking, everybody listened, you know, everyone, all the hijinks stopped. Um, and we had plenty of hijinks, you know, like you guys probably do. We'd have these funny announcements that would come up and people would make fake announcements about random stuff. You know what I mean? Um, and it was, it was funny. The seniors, there was a uh, nice culture of, of, of uh, hijinks, I guess, if you will. Funny stuff that wasn't going to hurt anybody or, you know, do anything mean to the school. But they were very clever in the things that they would talk about and stuff like that. I, that's one thing I loved. And then I loved the uh, senior speeches. Because mm -hmm. some people give really funny speeches and some people give very boring speeches. You never knew what you were going to get. That was every senior had to give a speech. Do they still do that now? No, but I think every senior should have to give a senior speech. We only have, I mean, we don't even get that many now, which I like because I've been going to some of the Bryn Mawr, some of my Bryn Mawr students mm -hmm. are doing their senior speeches and I've gone to check those out. And every Bryn Mawr senior has to give a speech. And I think, yeah. I think that's something we should bring back here at Gilman is, oh, yes. is the mandatory senior speech. Oh yeah. I don't know if it, I, I, I think that everyone always had to do it. It was, it was really fun. You gave one. Oh yeah. You remember what you spoke about? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I do. Um, I got up there and, uh, Mr. Menzies was my advisor and, um, he was a guy that was sort of like a coach Hudson type of guy that had worked in, um, business and then had sort of retired from that and was a teacher and he was in history. Um, and so I, 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 I talked to him about what I want to do and he said, yeah, okay, this will be pretty, pretty good. So anyway, I got up there and I took out a piece of paper. I had all these papers in my hand and I said, and I just started reading off the paper and I said, hi, I'm David Gaines, and today I'm going to talk to you about nuclear proliferation in our time and how dangerous this is, and da 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 da, and da 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 da, and da 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 da. And then I looked up thereby, and they were all just like, no way. And I just went, yeah, nah. And I took these papers and went, and threw them, and they just went all over the stage and all that thing. Everybody started cheering, like, yeah, because, you know, I kind of, I was known to be a funny guy. And so then I did this slideshow about my time at Gilman. 
Oh, wow. And I started showing all these slides of all these teachers and kind of, you know, poked fun at a few of them and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and, and, and poked fun at some things that had happened to me at Gilman that people knew about and they thought that was funny. And so I just did this whole thing. And then um, at the end of the event, I got kind of serious and I said, you know, I just want to thank my parents. You know, my parents were in the audience. I said, you know, without their love and support, I never would have gotten here and blah, blah, blah. And that's when I hit the last slide and it was me, you know, with like my, my favorite lunch lady and one of the, you know, lunch guys there, you know what I mean? My arms around them and them smiling and everyone was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just put that picture up there. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it was funny, you know, it was just, it was, an, and they were in the audience too. I invited them to come. So nice. They knew and, um, so it was kind of a, for me, it was a laugher, you know, at that point. And, That's and great. they, you know, and everybody had a good time. And I think that the, you know, administration was like, oh no, can we stop them? Like, can we pull the block? Which, you know, they, they let you go. As long as you didn't, it was tasteful. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't not, I didn't use foul language and I, I may have poked fun at some of the faculty because of their idiosyncrasies, but everyone, everyone knew about those same idiosyncrasies and it was just something right. fun to talk about. Right. No, nothing malicious. Nothing malicious. Yeah. Exactly. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So you so. go on to Princeton and then after Princeton, you go right to the Marines or did you have some space in between there? No, I went right in. Exactly. So I went to, um, officer candidate school in the fall of 1992 i graduated in um, june and then our may june time frame there um spent the summer here getting ready and then in october i I reported into the marine corps officer candidate school down in quantico virginia so did you know during your senior year at princeton that that's what you were going to do yeah good question so if uh you're too young but the um the gulf war was just happening in the summer of 1990 Iraq invaded Kuwait and um, we started gearing up for the war and President Bush pulled together a a coalition of forces and um, I remember going to it was uh, an eating club um, called Tiger Inn and I've gotten my breakfast and I was having breakfast that fall, and I was watching CNN. CNN back then was just, that was the only really international news source. And they were showing all these guys in the desert, you know, um, getting ready for battle. And I remember thinking to myself, I just had this calling. It was the first time I've had a calling. And uh, I had this calling, and I thought, I, I've, I've got to join. I've got to, I want to do that. And I remember telling my dad, I think I, I, think I need to drop out of school. And, and I want to do this. And he's like, are you crazy? You know, let me, let me explain to you how the military works. And I think you could, you can do it, but how about you consider officer candidate school and you need to have a, a degree. Why don't you talk to some other people? So it calmed me down that summer between my junior and senior year, I went out to Montana and lived on a ranch with my best friend. Hmm. And he and I just, he was my sounding board and he played devil's advocate about what a dumb idea it would be to do that. And, and uh, made sure that I was really convicted to do it. And more than ever, I wanted to do it. So I knew my, my whole senior year that I was going to, you know, apply for the Marine Corps. Wow. Now, when you say calling, what do you mean by that? What was that experience like of a, of a calling to the military, to a cause? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I remember my, I remember asking my dad this because he had a call. I said, Dad, how do you know what you want to be when you grow up? Because he wanted to be a doctor. And he said he knew. He had a calling from 
I think, from God. And I think so, too, for me. I just felt uh, inside my being, I knew that this was something I had to do. It was, it was like an undeniable sense of, I'm going to do this. This is what you should be doing. This is what you need to do. Um, it was just, uh, it was almost like, it was overwhelming to me. And I, I, I couldn't get away from that feeling, if that makes sense. It kept coming back to me. And it was like someone speaking to me, if you will, encouraging me, pushing me constantly in my head about it. Um, it was more of a sense you know, this is what I had to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and as I look back on my life, I see, okay, now I understand why, you know, why that calling happened the way it did. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I'll fast forward a little bit because eventually, um, I stayed in the reserves of the Marine Corps because when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went into, got my MBA from the university of Texas. And Texas is very pro-military, and they said, hey, if you are a veteran, you can get in-state tuition. Or if you're in active reserves, we'll give you in-state tuition. So I said, okay, I'll sign up. So I signed up, got in-state tuition, which was a huge savings back then. I mean, it might have gone from like $20,000 a semester a year down to $5,000. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous. So... Um, I did that, and then I used to have to go from Raleigh, North Carolina, down to Mobile, Alabama, and I used to fly through Atlanta, and that's where I met my wife. Um, I remember walking through the airport, and my wife was sitting on those promenade seats that face into the where everybody's walking, and she had her bags right next to her, and she was sitting with her back right to my gate, and I thought, God, that's a beautiful woman. And then I went down to the Hudson News and kind of got myself all psyched up and loosened <laughs> up. And I started walking back up the, up the alley there to, to, to sit down next to her. And I couldn't do it. I just walked past her. I kept walking a few more gates up. So I gave myself a good talking to as, as a proper Marine. And I just marched down there and plopped down next to her. And then I thought to myself, gosh, now what do I do? Now what do I say, right? Luckily, she broke the ice. Um, and, um, you know, we, we called in the, for reinforcements and then it was that she broke the dam and I just started talking to her. But after I started talking to her, um, I, once again, I had that overwhelming feeling, you know, that, that, that I should, I should marry this woman. And I just right met there at the right airport, there, right there at the airport. Wow. Yep. Yep. And it's funny because I'd moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. I've been living there for a year. I had friends down there that were introducing me to girls. I was 30 years old. I was meeting girls from North Carolina. And I remember praying about this and saying, you know, Lord, I'd love to, I want to find a good girl. I'm ready to settle down. I need your help. And I remember being told, you know, when you pray, you don't just ask for something random. You know, you kind of can kind of make it specific. And I said, and I want to marry a farm girl. I don't know why I put that in there, but I thought to myself, hey, girl, Daisy Dukes, Carolina, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting down there talking to my future wife, Catherine, and getting to know her. And she's from Canada. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, this is great. And that's when she told me, she said, yep, I, I grew up on a tobacco farm. I remember mm. thinking, okay, you got me. You got Prayers me. answered. Prayers answered. So um, when I left to get on the plane and landed, I called my mom and said, Mom, I think I, I just met the woman I'm going to marry. I just don't know how to find her. 
Oh, and no. So what I'd done is I'd given her my – luckily, I gave her my business card before I left because she was going over to Europe for two months. And I said, hey, write me a postcard from Scotland. That's, you know, my mother's heritage. She's a – She's of the Clan McFarland. So, you know, why don't you send me a, a postcard from over there? So she did. And, really? And uh, we kept in touch through postcards and emails for two and a half months. And then she moved to, uh, eventually moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. And, and uh, the rest is history. But, um, yeah, I had that same sense, that overwhelming sense that I was going to marry her. And it, start, it was that same feeling that I'd had when I went to join the Marine Corps. Hmm. You know? And uh, so how, it's just how long was the conversation at the airport? Yeah, it was about uh, hour, hour and a half. Oh wow, okay. Because it was place. like a fifteen-minute conversation. And no, she, no, no. She wanted to send you that postcard. Yeah, no, no. It was uh, well, you know, you know, <laughs> persuasive. But <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, she. Um, her flight was delayed. My flight was delayed coming in from North Carolina. So it was wow. it was neat. Yeah, that's an awesome story. Yeah, thanks. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who met at met at the airport. <laughs> yep. But yeah, yeah. So in the Marine Corps, um, was it everything that you expected or envisioned when you were a senior in college and you had the feeling that you wanted to join? Uh, it was better. It was amazing. It the the way I can describe it, someone like you as an athlete, it's taking off your one uniform, your Harvard uniform, right? You're a Harvard guy. Mm -hmm. I feel sorry for you there. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, you take off the Harvard uniform and you put on the Marine Corps uniform and you're around all these like-minded guys and you're just like, oh my word, this is so awesome. Everyone here is pulling on the same oar for the same reason. Um, when I actually, when I was in, it wasn't called boot camp, it was officer candidate school, the guy next to me, Tim Fogarty, you know, I'm six, I was six foot three at the time. He was six foot five and he was a Harvard guy and he was right next to me and he had a Harvard and Princeton guy and we kept it secret until the, you know, for like, we were there for 12 weeks till like the 10th week and they found out he was a Harvard guy. And I remember all these like drill instructors running up to him and saying, say something smart, say something smart. And you know, and it just, it was just so funny. And, uh, and then they found out about me, and it was like, oh, my gosh, the Twin Towers down here. You mm -hmm. know, you're going to tutor the rest of the class. Da, 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 da. You're going to help us do our taxes. I mean, it was one thing after another. The war, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I, I really loved it. And then I went into the infantry, and guys in the infantry are typically very athletic, come from you know, football, lacrosse backgrounds. One of my best friends, um, well, my two best friends were uh, lacrosse players. And we ended up living together out in California, got stationed out in 29 Palms, California. Um, and the bonds that you, you form with each other, it's amazing. You know, I was tight with my lacrosse friends and I thought, how am I ever going to have this sort of a relationship with anybody ever again? Marine Corps was even tighter. Because it's so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It puts you through that crucible. Um, and it's so challenging and so demanding. Um, and then the the adventures that you go on. You know, I got to see the world. Um, and I got challenged uh, way beyond my comfort zone on a lot of different things. And I found out that a lot of our limitations are self-imposed, especially when it comes to your body and physical body. Mm -hmm. There's things that you, you can't imagine that you'd be able to do 
which is if you if I explain it to you until you've kind of trained and then you've gotten ready and then you go do it with these other guys. It's just it's unbelievable. What was the most difficult physical experience that you had to push through mentally? Yeah, I went through some training where we were up for an entire week. They kept us up for a week and they would they gave us one meal a day and they gave us maybe two hours of sleep and then we would be we'd have a heavy pack and we'd be on the move every day you know putting in 15 20 clicks at a time this is in training yeah and and doing you know different um challenging things along the way and they kept you know moving the goalposts on us right and just to you know just to get to there i remember um Thankfully, I'd read a book about the uh, like the SAS and what they would do mentally is they would always get you to a point and then let you think that it was over and then they would, you know, turn the tide on you. Mm-hmm. So I remember one day, um, just to get into this training, it was funny that it was it was a it was a day of physical events. So you had to do the <clears throat> um, the Marine Corps fitness test. You had to do the Marine Corps swim test. You had to do the Marine Corps obstacle course. You had to do the combat run. Maybe it was like a six six mile run with a pack over obstacles as well. Um, then you had to in in between all this while you were resting, you were doing calisthenics and stuff, right? And they were just wearing you out. And it was just a long, grueling day. And um, I remember them. People were just quitting left and right because they just couldn't hang, and people were getting sick, and it was it was kind of it was a grueling day. And they I remember them putting us in a in a truck. It was like like. There's four of us left. And they said, hey, you guys have made it. Way to go. You know, throw your gear in the back. We're going to, you know, give you a ride home. And I remember getting in the back saying, guys, I, I don't think it's over. And sure enough, they, they drive us about 100 yards and stop. And then they start yelling at us. And there was two uh, um, telephone poles on the ground. And they said, you need to get these telephone poles back to the base. Um, it's by 0500. And it was sort of, it was, I think it was 8 p.m. at night. And they said, you know, the base is about, what was that? So nine hours, I think it was 18 miles away. And they said, we think you can probably do two miles an hour with these poles just between the two of you. And we're thinking 18 miles. I mean, we've done many, many miles today. And you want us to take 18 miles with these poles. And we knew we'd have to be going up and down hills and all this other stuff. And so we heaved them up and started walking and we were trying to come up with a pace, you know, on what we thought it would be. And I remember this one guy was like, I can't, I can't go on. I can't go on. And we're like, come on, man, just, just hang in there. You know, this is just another test. And sure enough, he quit and, and he, he fell out and just sat down on the sidewalk. And then the other guy was standing there with this pole and didn't know what to do. And he was like kind of dragging it along. And they were impressed by that. So they said, hey, come on over and help us out. And so he joined the three of us and we started carrying this one pole, three of us. And then the other guy that was with me, he decided to quit as well. He's like, I can't handle this. I'm, I'm done. And so he put it down. And then me and the other guys said, okay, well, I guess just two of us, buddy. Let's let's go. Let's try to make this happen. And we, and we started walking. And sure enough, not even a quarter of a mile, the truck shows up and says, all right, you're done. You made it. Mm. You know. And this is as far as you had to go, you know, just to that point. Yeah. But they told you. you it know, was 18. 18. Mm. And, you know, it was only – it was only ended up having to be like maybe a mile, if that, you know. And these other guys were so bummed because they could see. They could see they were still sitting there waiting as we kept walking off. And then they, you know, told the guys, look, you can't quit. So 
I was uh, that was physically, you know, just so exhausting. Yeah. Jeez. Was the training uh, much more difficult? Like, did was the preparation much more difficult than the actual real deal when you were overseas, or was it comparable? Yeah. Um, I think physically we were prepared very well because they really, they really pounded us, um, and we were ready. And they would also, because when you go overseas and you're in a, a stressful situation with, you know, other people over there who don't like you, um, and you're facing them, you typically don't sleep a lot. You don't get a lot to eat. You're on high alert for long periods of time. And that's what they would mimic. I mean, if you really want to find out what somebody's made of, you just deprive them a little bit of sleep and and don't let them eat everything they want. You know, one meal a day and let you sleep maybe four hours a night and make you do some real simple walking around with a heavy pack on your back for three or four days. And then ask you all to do some team building exercises, you know, hey, figure this problem out or do this or do that. And then if you don't do it, well, you'll just have to walk 10 miles. Or if you do succeed, you only have to walk two miles and you get an extra hour of sleep. And you want to see people get really frustrated with each other. So that was a great way to, you know, break you down mentally. And people think, oh, they must have to do, you know, so many oddball, crazy things to you. But it's really the secret to it is that it's just almost that simple, right? Because once you're in that mode, you've been there sleepless for three days and you, you haven't been eating and you haven't been sleeping. And then they put this challenge up to you. Hey, if you guys can work together as a team, then, you know, you'll get some extra rest. And if you fail, you're going to get some extra miles mm-hmm. and they make it. So pretty much you're going to fail. And then you see as a team, how you, how the guys come together and you'll quickly see, Hey, you and I are working well together. These other guys, you know, mm-hmm. so that's when you really have to train yourself um, to help each other when the chips are down and you're just exhausted, right? So this this book, Learning to Lead, or Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. Oh yeah. Uh, what what separates among all of these leaders and people working together who are bought in and have leadership abilities? What separates a, a leader of those people? Yeah. Uh, mental toughness in when it comes to this type of leadership, it's all about mental toughness. A lot of guys would, would look over and see a Arnold Schwarzenegger type body and think, Hey, that guy's going to be a real, real, you know, bad dude. Mm -hmm. He can hang and and do anything, but really wasn't that guy. You know, they'd look at a guy that was, you know, if I, if I saw a Marine that was of slight build, maybe a little skinny, uh, wiry, strong, but just tough between the ears. You could just tell that's the guy that you knew you could count on. These, you know, big, hulking, movie star-looking guys that you see. Those guys were usually the first ones to fall out and quit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it was just mental toughness. That's right? interesting. That's actually what surprised me the most about when I went to visit or drop my sister off at West Point. You know, I've been up there a couple times to see her. And all of the people running by or marching by, I would expect to be exactly what you're describing, big, jack dudes. But that wasn't the case. And I was like, these guys, I mean, you know, they're at West Point. You'd think that they're a yeah. certain build, but it's not so much about the physical appearance as it is mental. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, that's the thing. You, you need to overcome what you think your physical limitations are. And it's all between your ears. 
you know, of course you can get injured and you can't overcome that. And, um, you know, if you're not super strong, you can't do a lot of, you can't bench press something, but you can bench press your own weight and you can do pull-ups and pull yourself up and you can get over an obstacle course and you can overcome your fear of heights. And then you can just, um, put one foot in front of the other when you think it, you can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's when you kind of get in this zone right. and you just go when you think it, you're done and you're not, and you go for another couple of days, you know? Hmm. So, uh, what was your experience like with general Mattis? Oh yeah. So I didn't even realize that he didn't, he doesn't like the nickname mad dog. I was looking some things up. He doesn't like that. Yeah. Call sign chaos, Jim Mattis. Yeah. 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 I think that the, you know, a, a term like mad dog, you wouldn't like it just because it's, um, it's, it's too, it's somewhat disrespectful. You know, it makes him seem like he's some character animal or something like that. Right. When yeah. he was, he was, um, nothing could be farther from the truth. We, we used to call him the warrior monk. And so I remember he was our regimental commander when I was in 29 Palms and we'd have fire watch every night, everywhere around the world. I mean, night and day, there's always a Marine awake and armed at a military installation, especially if someone is sleeping, they're always going to be armed people, armed guards. Right. And so you would have uh, duty on, let's say a Saturday night and, uh, you'd have to stay up all night with you and a staff sergeant or something like that, and you'd go around and patrol the barracks and make sure that they were awake and all this kind of stuff. And um, he would just pop in on you on a random uh, Wednesday night, 3 o'clock in the morning, Saturday night, 3 o'clock in the morning, Sunday night, whatever, just to check on everybody. Um, and that's we were just like, oh, my gosh, this guy's you know everywhere. It's like a ghost would just appear out of nowhere. And that was the last thing you wanted to have because then he would start asking you something and and seeing if you were actually filling out your logbook, if you had been going around doing your rounds. And if everything was squared away, you'd have these amazing conversations with then Colonel Mattis at 3 o'clock in the morning about leadership, about what he was reading, about what are you reading. Um, he was very big into reading, a uh, big fan of history. Hmm. Um, and I think we hit it off because I was a you know history major. Um, I got to work for him. Uh, for a year, and that was uh, it. Was my last year in the Marine Corps. It was awesome. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your most memorable conversation with him? Um, it's probably the first conversation I had with him because um, he had, uh, you know, he wanted to impress upon me, you know, what I was going to be doing for him, and he has a way of giving a a pep talk like none other. It's, it's hard to explain. I mean, I can't even, you know, repeat it or, you know, claim to be at that level. But just imagine, you know, getting ready for the biggest game of your life and the coach comes in and gives you the most motivating speech. And he was just giving this to me to talk about my job and what I was going to be doing for him. And I thought, my gosh, I'm ready to walk through wall for this guy just after that one conversation. Right. Yeah. Um, and then when you would see him in front of the troops, he just knew how to talk to Marines. Right. I remember when he was in Afghanistan and he got the, the reporters got so upset because he was like, uh, you know, the Marines now own a piece of Afghanistan. And these reporters were just flabbergasted. Like, how can you say that? How can, you know, we're not, we're not invaders and we're not here taking over their country. And he, and he, and he said, well, I'd like to see him take this from me, you know, where he was sitting, this spot, right where I'm standing, I'd like to see him take it from me. 
I, I bet these Marines wouldn't let any, any of them near me. And the Marines are just going crazy. And this reporter's like, uh, 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 yeah, I, I better leave. Sorry. You know, because, you know, he's quoted as saying one time, uh, I remember there was an interview with him. They said, uh, you know, General Mattis, what, what, what keeps you awake at night? He goes, nothing. I keep other people awake at night. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just that kind of a, you know, a warrior. He was very serious about, about his trade, if you will. And he put all his whole heart and soul into it. Yeah. Um, like any great coach or great leader or something like that. It was just, uh, he was different. He was at a different level hmm. and he fought all the major desert campaigns, um, after the, the Gulf war when I was, and when I had that calling, mm-hmm. he, you know, he was task force ripper. He was the lead element going into Kuwait, went through the minefields first. It was the first, um, I think that we were the, the Marines were the first people into Kuwait ahead of the army. Um, you know, then he was in Afghanistan, then he was in Iraq. I spent many, multiple tours both in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a real desert warrior. So, what uh, what book did you bring in here? What's your book recommendation? Yeah, yeah, it's funny. So, uh, the um, this is Rick Warren's book, um, Purpose Driven Life, and um, I'd say uh, great read. I think for young men um, who. I think it, when you get to a certain age, you know that there's, you, you start to um, come to grips with your faith or not. And I was, uh, um, you know, my faith grew a lot stronger in the Marine Corps. You know, I remember being in the, because I remember, remember two moments explicitly in my, in my life. Um, one was at, uh, after officer candidate school, I went to the basic school and I was in Quantico, Virginia, and we went to the rifle range and I'd never fired a rifle in my life. But the Marine Corps training was so good um, that when it was all said and done, I, I was, you know, uh, I almost set a record for the for the range for the number of points I got as an as a officer candidate, and I was able to hit ten out of ten open sites five hundred yards away. I could hit a target, and I thought to myself, the next morning I was uh, that day I was really euphoric and excited, and the next day it just kind of hit me, and I thought, geez. Here I am in America, and I've never shot a rifle before, and the Marine Corps taught me how to shoot somebody from 500 yards away because it, it was a man-sized silhouette. Um, I thought, gee, what's that kid in North Korea and Russia doing right now? You know, he's thinking the same thing. And I thought, God, what have I done? Please forgive me. You know, I, I didn't think this through. Um, and then I remember being in uh, one of the most uh, emotional uh, services ever. I remember being surrounded by... Um, armored vehicles in Saudi Arabian desert and uh you know planes had been flying over top of us stuff and thinking you know and and we had a we had a church service right there and it was just a circle of men with a chaplain and it was just raw it was stripped down there was no you know no no church building and no stained glass and uh we had a bible and we had fellowship and we had the word of god and we had god with us I remember thinking, this is this is amazing, right? Um, so when um, I was down, uh, I was working in North Carolina for 16 years after Catherine and I got married, lived down there, um, had my kids down there, and I was working for my family business. And I knew eventually I might get called 
called back up to Baltimore. But I was really, really happy. I had all these friends. I was connected into the society. You know, <clears throat> I was in leadership positions on boards and stuff. And my cousin said, well, we'd like you to, you know, come back up. So I came back up, and it was sort of like a uh, culture shock to me because I had been running my 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 division, if you will, down there. And then here I am coming back to Baltimore. And my first year was kind of rocky, and I was just thinking, gosh, I just don't, I don't feel plugged in here, right? Mm-hmm. Where's my place? And I remember going down to North Carolina, and I was sort of like in a depressed, you know, it was kind of a depressive time. It was a dark season for me, right? I was praying to God, asking for guidance. And I remember driving down one of the main roads, it's Glenwood Avenue on 70, and I had this feeling to just go into this um, bookstore. So I I knew where the bookstore was, Barnes and Noble. And I went in there and I remember thinking I'd heard about this book, The Purpose Driven Life, and it was a Christian book. And I remember asking the lady and I said, Do you know who wrote this book? And she says, Oh yeah, it's a famous guy, Rick Warren. And it's way in the back in this back corner, um, where all the cobwebs are or whatever. And uh, so um but we got to backtrack here because right before I had left um, North Carolina, I was I went through like a like a year long sort of retreat, and it was like once a week, Wednesday evenings, about an hour and a half, and it was a group of you know people that were were going through this religious retreat, if you will, it was Christian based, <clears throat> and at the very end, we would have these. Uh, meditation ceremonies right um and you would go down and they would ask you a question to ponder or some scripture to think about and we went down into the church and we'd spend 20 minutes on our own and they had gregorian chanting music going on and it was just really overwhelming but when you i don't know if you're like me but if i close my eyes and try to meditate i'm sitting here thinking okay what time do I have to, what time is this interview going to be over? And uh, what am I having for dinner tonight? And, oh, yeah, what do the kids have? The kids have exams this week, and you just can't, your mind, and and what do I have to do for this weekend? What's Catherine going to do? Do I have to pick the kids? You know, your mind just starts racing, and you can't calm yourself down. Mm -hmm. So after the third time, I don't remember what the um, question was, but I remember sitting there just trying to think through whatever the lady had asked us to think through. And I heard a voice that said, it's not about you. And I remember thinking, that did, it didn't sound like my head. You know, we, we all have that voice inside our heads that we're kind of used to hearing. It was, it was different. It was clear. It was like, it's not about you. And I'm thinking, it's not about me. It's not about me. What, what, what are you talking about? You know, and I just, I just kept staying with me, staying with me, staying with me. So fast forward, here I am um, in Raleigh going into this Barnes & Noble bookstore looking for, um, you know, this book from uh, Rick Warren, which I guess I'll put it up on camera here. Everybody can see that, The Purpose Driven Life. Um, anyway, and I, I go back to the church where I had this this <clears throat> uh, chap, this uh, retreat, if you will. And when you open up the book and you, you look at the, the very first chapter, very first sentence, it says, it's not about you. And I dropped this book on the ground and thought, oh, my God, like, whoa and i started reading it and it was exactly what i needed to hear um and thankfully rick warren warns you he says you cannot read through this 
it's a 40-day adventure. You need one chapter at a time. You need to sit down and digest it and that sort of thing. And then I got to listen to, he has a podcast on it, and you could listen to some of his sermons. Um, and it it's the most impactful book I've ever read next to the Bible in my life. Um, and it, it's totally helped um, change, you know, who I am and everything. And, and I've learned to, you know, embrace my faith a little bit deeper. Hmm. You know, it's it's wonderful. It got me to be, you know, just more involved with the church, you know, going, going to the church. Um, because sometimes you don't want to go to church because it's about you, you know. I'm going to church because I want to be entertained or I want to be moved. No, it's about God. You know, we're here to worship God, right? Um, I started, uh, they said, hey, you should join a small group. So I, I joined a small group. And now I have fellowship with like-minded individuals. It say, you know, you need to tithe. And so I started tithing. You know, it, it said, you need to serve. And I started serving. And now I'm a youth minister. And I work with these kids on Sundays. And both Connor and Ava serve with me at the at the church as well. Uh, and my wife too. And then uh, just this past year, the last thing kind of on the list was to do a mission. And um, my wife um, said, yeah, I'd love to do a mission, but we're not going to Africa or Haiti or someplace away from here when there's so many people right here in our backyard that need help. Well, we have a, you know, we're, we're, we have a place at Deep Creek Lake and we drive through Cumberland on the way there. And so in Cumberland, the um, Catholic Heart Work Camp had a mission trip. And so we as a family went on a mission trip this summer, Connor, Ava, and Catherine and I. <clears throat> and it was absolutely wonderful. And so it's funny when, you know, you read a book and then you sort of digest it and listen to it and then act on it and you see your life changing in such wonderful ways, right? Um, it, it's wonderful because, you know, I'm not a perfect person in any way. Um, I made a lot of mistakes, you know, I got in trouble when I was here at Gilman, and, you know, I'm sure Coach Tierney would have liked to have, you know, chopped my head off a few times when I was at Princeton. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about that. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish I could control my anger better as a father, you know what I mean, and as, and as an employer sometimes. Um, and just, it, it's hard, but um, that's okay. You know, that's where God's grace comes in, and I can work on trying to be a better person every day, hopefully with, you know, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it's funny how I just know that this is a, you know, another moment, one of those God moments looking back, right? That I was, went to this bookstore and found this. And then I saw, I mean, it's unbelievable mm -hmm. when I tell people this and they're like, no way, but it's just part of my way. I'm just, I'm telling you the truth. This is what happened. And um, then this, by reading this, it really brought me back from the brink, right? And breathed new life into me and stuff. So um, that's why I brought this book. I, I just, you know, you'd ask me about impactful book and, and I read a lot, you mm -hmm. know, <clears throat> I'm reading a lot of good books on coaching right now. Joe Ehrman's inside out coaching. Yep. Fantastic book. Can't put it down. Uh, I just finished Lou Holtz's book on coaching. Hmm. I'm sort of on a coaching kick right now. Are so. you coaching right now? No, I'm looking for a coaching job though, what? if you know anybody. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I would like to maybe coach up by my office. My office is up in uh, Town area. Nice. You know, so I'd love to, you know, work with kids and youth, young kids in lacrosse, right? Yeah. To, to build that esprit. Um, because you as a coach, you know, and, and so many of us have been so influenced by the coaches in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I think back to what Coach Holly did for me and all the coaches. I mean, I had lots of good coaches at Gilman. I can't just say one. Right. Um, but uh, I think coaches play a special role in the development of young men and women. Um, and if they're not careful, you know, they can abuse that role. Uh, and they don't mean to abuse it, but maybe they just don't think about it. Because, I, you know, as you and I both remember, there's there's been moments with coaches that we'll never forget. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And they really, you know made such a big difference in our lives right alongside of our teachers and our parents. You know, I think those, that's the, those are the three legs of the stool when you're in high school, probably, you know, or if you're maybe, let's say you're in a performing, performing arts or something, you know, that's a coach, I think as well, like a theater type of teacher can be coaching you on how to act and sing and that sort of thing. So I think that's another role of coaching, or even if you're an artist, right, you need an art teacher to coach you as well. That's that same you know, or a musician, um, it's wonderful the effects that they have alongside of your teachers and your parents. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Awesome. Well, thank you for bringing the book in. That sounds like an amazing, amazing yeah. pickup. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you got a poem too. Want to yeah. save the poem? Yeah. 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 I've had, well, I had uh, two poems for you there. One I talked about, it about was the, um, you know, the, the uh, road less traveled and, uh, and then, uh, if, so if you want, we can uh, finish up with one of these poems if you'd like. Road left, road less traveled. Road, yeah, is a I should say the road not taken. That's road. what I say. I always get that wrong. Yeah, but, uh, road not taken. Robert Frost. Yes. Um, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there, had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black, oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And, you know, I think that, that for me, that sums up my path, because I remember when I left the Marine, when I left Princeton, and people said, you're going to do what? You're going to join the Marine Corps? And it was that moment where I decided to listen to my own voice, right? mm-hmm. and listen to my own calling, and not worry about what everybody else thought I should be, a lawyer, a doctor, a investment banker, because that's what, you know, I'd been doing my whole life up to that point, right? Um, so it was, it was a wonderful freeing moment, and then I've never looked back since then. Love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It was an awesome conversation. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you very much. Of course. Appreciate it. Thank you. Go Hounds. Go Hounds.